If you want to open your Bibles, we'll put the, the passages on the, on the screen, but if you want to open your Bibles, we're going to be in the first 10 verses of Luke chapter 17 this morning. We're going to begin by listening to Jesus talking to his disciples. And he's going to talk to them about four different things as we go through the course of these ten verses. And the first one we'll see in these first three verses. Luke records that Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. But woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So, watch yourselves. It is, it is something that we notice as we go through the Gospel accounts that Jesus often gave the same teaching more than once. In fact, as John reminds us at the end of his gospel, Jesus said and did a lot of things that are not recorded for us. There just wouldn't be a way to record everything that Jesus said and did. As John says, the, the world couldn't hold the books that would be necessary for us to have all of that information. But one of the things that we do see is there are certain teachings that Jesus gave more than once in different circumstances. This is a teaching that we find three times in the Gospels. And in each situation, Jesus comes to this teaching from a different, with, from a different place. In the, other, in the other two locations where Jesus presents this particular teaching, it begins with the account of Two of Jesus' disciples, the brothers James and John, the sons of Zebedee, making a, 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 an inquiry of Jesus as to who would be the greatest among them, his disciples, when Jesus came into his kingdom. And in one of the two accounts where this incident is recorded, we're told that Jesus brought a little child from among the, the group that was there and positioned the little child in front of them and used the child as an example of humility. That what they really ought to be focused on is not becoming great, but becoming humble like a child. And then Jesus having made that point, makes this point about not leading one of these little ones who believe in him to stumble. Now in this particular case, when Jesus makes this, this, this point or gives this particular teaching, he doesn't come to it from that particular incident. You know, this is a separate a separate occasion when Jesus used this same figure and taught this same lesson, doubtless because, as we're going to see, he wants to use this as an introduction 
to some other things that he's about to say. So this is something that Jesus taught more than once, but this time he has a different reason for teaching this particular lesson about not causing others to stumble. And really this time, Jesus is focused less on the idea of humility and more on the idea of influence. Influence is a powerful thing. And all of us have influence, whether we recognize it or not. We have influence on the people that we come into contact with. And influence can be either positive or negative. We can be a good influence on other people, or we can be a bad influence on other people. And we really need to make a conscious choice in every interaction that we have with other people as to what kind of influence we want to be. It's kind of funny because in the world that we live in today, in the early part of the 21st century, there are a lot of people whose job title is influencer. If you go on the internet, you've probably heard of that, it's the, the computer thing. If you go on the internet, you will find that there are many people who refer to themselves as influencers, whose, whose job it is to influence people to do something, or more often to buy something, or some collection of some things, or some range of some things. And so they're using the influence they have to, to achieve a particular goal. They have made a specific point out of being influencers. But what we all need to realize, we are all influencers. We may not be trying to get somebody to buy a particular line of cosmetics or a particular brand of clothing or to participate in a, in a particular uh, group of secular activities, but we are all influencers. We all, simply by doing what we do in and around other people, influence others. And we really need to be conscious of the fact that not only that we have that influence, but also that we need to make a choice about how that influence works. Whether it's a good influence or a bad influence. And Jesus wanted his disciples to be aware of the fact that they were influencers. And that they needed to exercise that influence wisely. Notice also here that Jesus makes the point, which he does not make in the other places where he gives this teaching, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. Temptation is inevitable. Temptation is all around us. We cannot live and move in this world without being confronted by various kinds of temptation. Even Jesus, living in the world, we're told was tempted in all ways as we are. 
Jesus could not live in this world as a human being and not be confronted by temptation. Temptation is inevitable. But notice what Jesus says. He says, Woe to anyone through whom those things that cause people to stumble come. Temptations may be inevitable. But we don't want to be the cause of temptation for other people. We don't want to be the vehicle through which other people are led to do things or even think things that they ought not to do or think. And if we think about that in terms of the way that we live in the world and the way that we not only interact with people, but just conduct ourselves when other people can see us. We realize that's a powerful responsibility. Because not only do we not ourselves want to fall into temptation any more than we can avoid it, but we also don't want to be the reason that somebody else falls into temptation. Because sometimes maybe we're doing something that we think is okay and might even be okay for us. But it's problematic for somebody else. And that might, because of our influence, lead that person to doing something that is troubling to their conscience. And when we think about that, that's a real powerful responsibility that we have. And we also realize from what Jesus teaches here is that causing others to stumble is a doubly dangerous thing because not only are you yourself sinning in whatever you're doing, but you're leading someone else to do what's wrong. You've become responsible not only for your own soul, but you've become responsible for somebody else's soul. Because you, by their, your influence, are leading another person in, in a wrong direction. And that's why Jesus says at the end of that little lesson, he says, so watch yourself. Watch yourselves. Those words are there for an important reason. We don't always perceive the effect that we have on those around us. We don't always understand the power of our influence. Whether that influence is positive or negative. Sometimes it's positive in ways that we don't even understand. All of us have probably had circumstances where somebody has come up to us and said, you know, I really appreciated that thing that you did or that thing that you said, and we didn't even remember doing or saying that thing because it wasn't really to us all that important. But it had a great impact on that person who saw or heard or was the recipient of those words or actions. And so what Jesus wants his disciples, and by extension us, as his later disciples, 
to be conscious of is watch ourselves. Pay attention to the influence that we have. Don't create a millstone for someone else and by extension put a millstone around our own neck because we have become responsible for the sin of some other individual. Not because they're not ultimately responsible for their own actions, but because we have influenced them in a way that we should not. And so that point leads into Jesus' next point. In verse, continuing in verse 3, Jesus says, If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times come, come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Now it's not by accident that this teaching follows what Jesus just said. Because just as we have influence on other people constantly by the nature of our words and actions. Other people have influence on us or have interaction with us. Sometimes positive, sometimes negative. And here Jesus first observes that if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. So the first thing that Jesus wants us to understand is that sin warrants rebuke. That is to say that having a forgiving spirit does not mean we just ignore it when people do things that they shouldn't do. We shouldn't just say, well, because I have a forgiving spirit, I'm just not going to pay any attention to that thing. Sin warrants rebuke and warrants correction. Those are the two sides of the same coin, by the way. Rebuke is telling somebody, here's something you did wrong. And correction is telling somebody, here's what you ought to do instead of that thing you did. Here's the right way to go about this. You might remember that Paul, in writing to Timothy, says that the scripture is breathed out by God and is is worthwhile for, he says, for, for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So God's Word is good for, number one, giving us instruction about what to do. It's good for rebuke, that is, it's good for telling us, hey, don't do that. But it's also good for correction, saying, here's what you ought to do instead of that thing as well as being valuable for training us in righteousness, teaching us how to live in the right way before God. So sin does warrant rebuke and correction. If somebody sins against you, it is not a wrong thing to point out to that person what they did. In a loving and kind and, and forgiving way, but it is not a wrong thing to point that out. But, Jesus says, having rebuked that person, 
if they ask for forgiveness, you are to forgive them. Even if they do it seven times in a day. If they ask you seven times for forgiveness, you should forgive them. And that's a hard thing for us. Because, you know, sometimes you might forgive somebody once when they do something. The second time they do it and ask for forgiveness is like, well, I forgave you the last time. If they get up to seven times by that time, you're like, I don't know about this whole forgiveness thing. But Jesus says even if seven times in a day, someone sins against you, but they ask for forgiveness, you are to forgive them. You remember that Jesus used the same teaching on one occasion when Peter asked the question, you know, if, if my brother sins against me, how many times do I have to forgive him? And Jesus, and Peter said, well, what about seven times? Maybe Jesus had taught this before, and Peter remembered that, and said, ah, Jesus said seven times, what about eight? <laughs> and Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. That idea of seven is simply meant to represent as many times as is necessary. Seven is, is a number that we see repeated frequently in Scripture that represents a, a completeness or a totality of something. However many times is necessary, you are to forgive. Because guess what? That's what God does for us. If we sin seven times in a day, God is there to forgive us every single time when we ask for His forgiveness. Indeed, if we sin 70 times seven in a day, God is there to forgive us when we ask Him. Some of you may have had the experience in, in, in dealing with, uh, with health insurance of the concept of a benefit maximum. You know, there are some times where your insurance, there's a certain thing that they'll cover, but only up to a certain point. I remember when, when Kayla uh, was young and she needed, needed braces for her teeth. The orthodontics benefit of our dental coverage at that time had a benefit maximum for orthodontics. They would cover up to a certain point, but after that, you were on your own. You had to pay for it yourself if you exhausted that benefit. And I've often wondered, what if God imposed a benefit maximum on forgiveness? What if God said, here's all the forgiveness you get, and if you use that up, you're on your own? I don't know about you, but I'd have used my benefit maximum up a long time ago. And I don't know where I'd be now. God doesn't cap our benefit on forgiveness. And therefore, Jesus says, we can't do that for other people either. Just as God forgives us without limit, we have to forgive 
without limit. We have to be willing to forgive to the same level and degree that we ourselves are forgiven. You remember Jesus taught his disciples in giving them an example of how to pray. To say, forgive us our trespasses as what? As we forgive those who trespass against us. If we're going to put a benefit maximum on other people's forgiveness, we are inviting God to put a benefit maximum on our forgiveness. We don't want that. At least I know I don't want that. Because the day I run out of forgiveness, I'm in big trouble. And we have to be willing to extend that same level of forgiveness, as painful as it is. Yes, it hurts when someone continues to do the same hurtful things over and over and over again and keeps coming back and saying, I'm sorry. But do we not suppose that's how God feels toward us? When we do the same things over and over and over again and keep coming back and saying, Lord, forgive me. If the example of God is to always forgive when we repent, we have to extend that same kind of forgiveness to others. Having heard that now, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And again, that response is to what they just heard. Which is, don't lead other people to sin, because by so doing, you tie a millstone around your own neck, spiritually speaking. And always be ready to forgive no matter how many times someone sins against you and asks forgiveness. They say, Lord, increase our faith. In other words, Lord, we don't have enough faith to do that. We don't have enough faith to live like you're calling us to live. Increase our faith. And Jesus says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. You see, the apostles thought that the problem with their faith was that it was not big enough. And, and to a certain degree, that's, that's all of our challenge. We can always use more faith. But what Jesus wanted them to understand was the real problem is we have to use the faith that we have for the purpose God has given it and believe that it works. Because we're never going to have as much faith as we wish we had. Our faith is never going to be as big as we want it to be. We have to be able to do the things that God calls us to do 
with the level of faith that He's given us. Because even a small amount of faith is powerful if we entrust that faith to God fully. Because, see, the challenge is not about us. The challenge is not my ability to live an upright life so that I don't lead people down the wrong path. The challenge is not about my ability to forgive as God forgives. The challenge is to trust in God that that is possible if I simply allow Him to do the work of faith in me. You remember the words of the Apostle Paul. I can do all things, and he doesn't stop the sentence there. I can do all things, what? Through Christ, who what? Who strengthens me. Paul understood that the accomplishment of the mission that God had given him was not about the greatness of Paul. It was about Paul's ability to trust in him who would give him the strength to do whatever he was called upon to do. And so Jesus responds to the call of the apostles when Jesus says, here's two things you need to do. You need to live in such a way that you don't lead other people in a bad direction. And you also, when people forget, sin against you, you need to forgive them without limit. The apostles immediately say, we don't have enough faith to do that, Lord. You need to give us more faith. And Jesus said, if you have a little bit of faith, even faith the size of a mustard seed. You can move a tree from here to the ocean. In other places, he uses the figure, you can move a mountain. And Jesus isn't literally talking about moving trees and mountains. He's simply using that as an analogy to say, Whatever it is that is the obstacle in your way, your faith is big enough to remove it if you entrust that faith to God. And stop trying to figure it out yourself. Our challenge is not that our faith is too small, but that we fail to fully entrust it to God who is greater than everything. It's never that our faith is too small. It's that we don't believe in the God who is great. And that's our ongoing challenge. To trust more fully in God to accomplish what God wants to accomplish. Not to try and accomplish everything on our own. And then the fourth lesson that Jesus 
gives. And again, notice all these things are tied together. These are not four things that are random thoughts. All of these things flow together. Having just told the disciples that your real challenge of faith is to trust in God enough to allow that faith to be powerful. He now says this. He says, suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? And after that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you've done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Jesus puts this bow on the package of teaching that he's just given them, which is to say, I am calling upon you to do some challenging things. To be a good influence and not a bad one. To be one who forgives in all circumstances. To be one who recognizes the power of faith and allows God to use that faith to accomplish great things. But when you do all of that, remember this. You're not doing it so that God can pat you on the back. You are not doing it so that God can say, man, you're an awesome servant. I am so lucky to have you on my side. Because the real fact is, even if we do everything that God calls upon us to do, all we are doing is what we're supposed to do. The service is its own reward. We should not be looking at what we do in service to God as though we are racking up bonus points that we can cash in someday at that great redemption center in the sky. Some of you might be old enough to remember when you used to go to the store and like the grocery store and you bought stuff at the grocery store, you get trading stamps. Depending on what part of the country you lived in, they might have been S&H green stamps or blue chip stamps or top value stamps. There were different companies that did this. But you would get so many stamps based on how much you spent at the store. And you would take those stamps home and you put them in little books. And when you collected enough of those little books, you could go to a redemption center and turn those books in and get a reward. Sometimes, you know, if you had a couple of books, it was a small thing. You know, like a little piece of costume jewelry or something. If you had a bunch of those books, you could get a toaster or a blender. If you had a lot of those books, you could get a refrigerator. And too often we think that's how God works. 
that when we do the things that God calls upon us to do, we're putting more stamps in our book. And that someday we'll be able to turn in all of these books to get a reward. But that's not the purpose of us doing what God calls upon us to do. Jesus said you're only doing what's your duty to do. You're only doing the thing for which God created you. Don't expect a pat on the back for that. Don't expect some kind of reward for that. Doing what God has made you to do is its own reward. If you are a servant and you carry out your service faithfully, that is the reward in and of itself. Is that you've done the job that you were given. And that's what we have to remember as servants of God. That we ought not to perform our acts of service, whether it is to God or whether it is to our neighbor, and both of those, by the way, as we know, are the same thing. But we ought not to do good things because we hope that we'll get something good out of it. Jesus wants servants who serve because they're servants. He wants people who do what they're supposed to do because that's what they do. That should be who we are. When we serve God or when we serve others, and again, those are the same thing, but it should come from a heart of service. It should come from a place of, this is the person I am. I am a person who serves. I am a person who does good to others. Not because I hope God is watching and putting stamps in my book. But because that's what God has made me to do. John gave us the example at the Lord's table this morning. Of a brother who passed. And now others had gathered together to remember that brother's life. All of us should live the kind of lives that others can remember the good things that we did, not so that they can praise us. But as John made the point this morning, so that others can praise the God that we serve because of who we were. Jesus himself didn't come, as he said in his own words, to be served by others. He came to serve. And if we are his disciples, then that is our challenge, to be people who serve, whether God or others, not because we look for a reward, but because that's who we are. So in this brief passage, we see that Jesus gives his disciples, and by extension us, four responsibilities. There's the responsibility of influence. 
we have the responsibility to be a good one. But equally importantly, we have a responsibility not to be a bad one. And we need to live constantly in such a way that we're aware of that. Those words that Jesus said at the, at the beginning of verse 3, watch yourselves, should always be in our minds. Not because we think about being on camera all the time, but because the things that we say and do have an influence on the people that we, that we live with and around and among. And we always want that influence to be an influence for Christ and not for Satan. We have the responsibility of forgiveness that even as we are forgiven without limit, we have a responsibility to forgive without limit. We can't put a ceiling on other people's benefit because God puts none on ours. We have a responsibility of faith and that is to trust in the power of the faith that we have and not constantly be worrying about the fact that I don't have enough faith. Put the faith that you have in the hands of the Almighty God. And you'll be amazed at how much power is in it. If it's the size of a mustard seed, if that's all the faith you have, Jesus says, you can pitch trees into the ocean. You can move mountains. Because the power of faith is not in you power of faith is in God and you need to put your faith in him and finally we have the responsibility of service to live our lives not toward reward certainly we look for reward at the end but that's not our motivation our motivation is to be the kind of people that God made us to be the kind of people that his son Jesus has called us to be and has given us the example of being. Because Jesus didn't serve because he wanted to go back to heaven and have his father say, good job, son. But because Jesus came to do what his father called on him to do. And he calls on us to do likewise. As you go about your week this week, think about these four things. Think about your influence. Think about the way that you affect the people around you. Watch yourself, as Jesus said. Be conscious of how you affect the lives of the people around you and let that effect always be positive. Be forgiving. And in those times when it's hard to be forgiving, and, and it is hard, remember how hard it must be for God to forgive you. Because when I look at my life, and I look at the things I've said and done, I realize how gracious God is. I realize how loving and forgiving He is. And I need to extend that same grace to others.
Think about your faith. Stop worrying about whether you have enough faith to be what God wants you to be. And just trust that if you put yourself in God's hands, He'll enable you to be all that He wants you to be. And to do everything He wants you to do. And always, always, always serve God and serve others. Not because you hope to get something in the process, but because that's who you are. You are a servant of the great King. You are a servant of Him who came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many.